Welcome to the Surf and Stars Social Club podcast. I'm your host, Celestina. I'm a change coach and astrologer with a special interest in parenting and family dynamics. This is a show about reimagining and re-enchanting relationships with ourselves, with our minds, with others, and with the world. Welcome to episode 14 of the podcast. Today I'm speaking with Sarah Corbett. Her pronouns are she, her. Sarah is a clinical herbalist, nutritional therapy practitioner, certified intuitive eating counselor, and traditional astrologer. She's passionate about helping others come into relationship with the natural world. She's the founder of Rowan and Sage, where she shares handcrafted, astrologically aligned herbal products, works with clients in her clinical practice, and guides others on their plant path through educational programs and mentorship. Sarah's work weaves together the old ways with the new to create powerful, evidence-based offerings that bring forth ancestral herbal wisdom with a touch of magic and mysticism. Okay, let's dive into the conversation. Like, I really love astrology and I really love herbalism, but I don't love a lot of the ways in which they are, like, impacted by various cultural constructs. That is something that I think is interesting, and maybe we can get into that a little bit later, but I've been seeing a lot of people who work in similar spaces basically being like, yeah, these systems are horrible and oppressive, and we still need to, like, navigate them as we like work on dismantling yeah. them. So it's like, it's that thing of like, I can't just choose to completely opt out, you know, like that's not realistic. And we have this discussion a lot in like anti-diet and non-diet nutrition spaces where is it like, we know all of the harms that diet culture does to people. Um, we know it's unsustainable. We know that anytime someone is motivating themselves through an idea of weight loss, that they are going to hit roadblocks because it's physiologically bad for us to conceptualize our bodies that way. We've had the science for that since like the forties. But it is just true that it is easier to move through the world in a thinner body. So like, how do we navigate clients who come to us legitimately seeking weight loss? Because they're just not there yet. They are not able to opt out of that structure. I mean, I mean, personally, as someone who struggled with an eating disorder, it's not work for me, but like, I I couldn't do that. I couldn't support someone through that. Um, But it's a conversation we're having a lot of like, how do we maintain our ethical guideposts and like recognize that this person's suffering under the system and they're doing the best they can. Yeah. Yeah. I, it is interesting. I mean, I think that's kind of why I left this space. Cause like, I was like, I'm genuinely reaching my own limit here. Like I don't, yeah. you know, I don't know how to navigate this in integrity for myself and also for you. Um, and I do think one of the things that can be really helpful, but also is a very privileged place to be is like, going somewhere bigger or doing something bigger and more in soul like something that becomes more important to you than like the shape of your body or like how your body knocks against the world but also recognizing that you know in this world sometimes it's very hard for people to 
a be able to like live out that dream or like live out that like in sold purpose but also for a lot of people it's hard to just even encounter what it is to like find and have like the space to be able to even yeah. slow down enough to think about it yeah mm-hmm. um I kind of I hit that place with my work where it stopped being fun I haven't had my books open in a long time because of all of this you know figuring out my role in supporting people in this way um I still work with some of my past clients as they need it because I tend to work with people for months to years but um it stopped being fun. And then I got to a place last winter where I was like, I just want it to be beautiful. Hello, exalted Venusian. Like, I just want it to be soft and pretty and joyful and fun. And like, there's medicine in that. It's so interesting that you say that because I've been doing a lot of um, reading of Martin Pactel. I don't know if you know him, but he is very much like an indigenous, has an indigenous lensing and approaches things um, from that perspective. And one of the things that he teaches on, which when I first encountered it, I was like, this feels a little like superficial is that like beauty is so important and beauty is what feeds the holy. And like, it almost doesn't even matter like what you're doing, but if you're doing it in this beautiful way, like if you're doing it in this like intentional style, then um, that's the medicine. And just the more that I dive into his work, the more I'm like, oh, like there is something, like I'm liking this more and more. I'm liking this more and more. And it is super Venusian. Yeah. I Um, mean, beauty is necessary. Yeah. Yeah. And we gravitate towards aesthetics. Like we all, humans have always made art and worshipped beauty and now we can see that become like vain and bad but you know um yeah I've been I just I just want it to be pretty I just want it to be pretty (laughs) I I do think there is actually a lot of medicine in that if again we can like unwind the way that like consumerism and like superficiality culture have infiltrated beauty you know yeah um but anyways <laughs> feels like we're just, <laughs> yeah we could just we could just like, talk about this that is good. this belongs on the podcast but i do i do want to get back, back to the question okay well here let's let's start with this question okay. um okay yeah this because I specifically remember you saying something in the post that you wrote that was like tuning into lunar cycles and changing kind of like little things about your lifestyle or about like your health. Is that right? Like really changed your health and really changed your vitality. And I looked for that post and I couldn't find it, but is that correct? Like did I paraphrase that correctly? Yeah, so I, well, gosh, I think that was in Taurus season, probably. So (laughs) it was a while ago that I made that post talking about lunar, like tracking your life according to lunar cycles. And um, wait, quick question before I go further into that. Am I allowed to curse on this podcast? Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, Because it'll just slip out. (laughs) We're very cursy. So, yeah. So yeah, back in Taurus season, I made this post about um, 
tracking our life in accordance with the moon in like a very gentle way. I don't really like hyper tracking anything in our lives because it can get very obsessive and um, can feed some negative coping mechanisms. Um, but something to know about me and my why this is like important to me is that I am a sometimes chronically ill person. Um, I have spent a large majority of my life very, very sick to the point of like working out of my bed most of the time. Um, in recent years, it hasn't been so bad. I just experienced flares every now and then. But back when I was really, really ill, I could never figure out what the pattern was. And this is a common thing that I see in my clinical practice where people come to me and they're having all of these wild symptoms and they can't figure out what the threat is. Mm. These things seem seemingly disconnected. And now as like a clinician, I can look and I can see where different uh, body systems are expressing a symptom pattern rooted in a root cause uh, that most people aren't really able to observe, whether because they don't have the information about health or when you're in your own body, it's like very difficult to suss out what's happening in it sometimes. Um, but I learned pretty early on in my astrology studies, like my serious commitment to astrology studies, because I had always been exposed to it. Um, but I learned about the moon and the lunar cycle, you know, how it's moving through all 12 zodiac signs on a pretty regular rhythm um, in a fairly short period of time, about like 29 and a half days. And I just started gently um, notating like the symptoms I was having and how I was feeling and my emotional state and all of these lunar themes because the moon is all is like this embodied place. It's all about our physical embodiment. Um, and it can tell us so much about our experience of being in a body. I took these notes, um, just paying attention to where the moon was, no other transits. And I started to be able to see patterns and themes. Um, and I did that for years. And now I kind of, orient my life around the things that I learned then. Um, so there's a lot we can talk about there. I'm, but that was kind of the core that I was, I was bringing up with that original post. So would it be too invasive and you can say yes to like get a little bit more granular about like your kind of what you were noticing in your body and like what you were writing down and what the correlation was between what your body was doing and what the lunar phase was or... Yeah, so I mean, it's like to break it down kind of, you know, step by step of this process, like first we have the moon as this embodied place, this, um, you know, I'm not quite sure like how deep into um, some of the philosophical themes behind astrology that your audience is familiar with, but like we have this understanding in astrology that the moon is the like last checkpoint of before things enter the material realm mm. where like the elements and um different energetic qualities of the other planets are being filtered through these spheres that are stacked up on top of each other and the great chain of being and then the moon is like the final place where souls get bodies you know where these elemental qualities filter through and come down to earth and create our material reality um and so our 
have that just physical quality with the moon, the moon being this like filter, this cosmic connector. Um, and then, uh, which is just existing as like the entirety of the world, whether we're participating in it or not. And then we have our own moon sign where the moon was when we were born. How are these elemental qualities being filtered down into our being? And for me, I have always had a strong affinity with the moon because I'm a full moon baby. Mm. <laughs> and uh, living and understanding the experience of having a sun-moon opposition mm. has been a difficult theme for my entire life, um, especially because I am a Leo rising. So um, anything happening with my son as my um the ruler of my ascendant and I'm a daytime baby so my sex light um has been a difficult theme for me and so I started learning more about my moon sign beyond just we always learn about our sun signs but I started learning more about my moon sign started learning about how the moon can help to really explain um the rate of flow of our vital force is a phrase that Judith Hill, a very well-known medical astrologer taught, says, she describes our moon sign like that. Because the sun is like our vital force, our inspiritedness, um, kind of our liveliness. And the moon and its mode is going to help to tell us how that vitality is going to filter out into our life. So me having both a mutable sun and a moon there's this inherent changeability within my vitality. Um, and that started to help me understand why my stuff was all over the place all the time. My needs were changing all the time. I didn't know how to meet them because it was so immutable and confusing. Um, and so just that layer helped me understand. And then like layering on my actual chart and house significations and seeing how as the moon was going through each of these different sects like sectors of my life, what themes were coming up and how was that relating to um, not only those themes, but also like the body areas that those signs govern, the um, other placements that I have throughout my chart. It's It can get very, very granular or you could just generally look at like, what is the moon in the world and in your own life through the lens of your chart? Hmm. Yeah, I'm still like, can you anchor it into something like a specific example? Because I, I think this is like a lot of really beautiful theory. And I'm like, I don't know if there's anything you can pick from your own chart or your own experience where you're like, well, the moon was in Taurus. And like, I felt something in my hip or like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, so my chart is, I pretty much have everything in my fourth house and in my eighth house, like, Okay. Those are where okay. most of my placements are. <laughs> Learning a lot about you. <laughs> Sun Which like tracks. Fourth house, eighth house, Leo rising. Yeah. Um, tracks, you know, when you think about the themes of my life in terms of my Venus Jupiter trine, the um, focus on relationality and ancestral connection, you know, all of these different things that I, I, I'm very much living out my chart. Um, but both of those signs are water signs for me. Anytime the moon is in a water sign for me, I don't have a good time because <laughs> it's tender points in my chart. Um, like 
when I when the moon is in Pisces, which Pisces has a relationship in medical astrology to yes, the feet, that's what everyone always knows, but also like um, aspects of your small intestine, especially the lymphatic tissue in the small intestine that has a relationship with the immune system. I have an autoimmune condition that I have celiac disease. Um, celiac is a inability to, or a reactivity to gliadin, which is present in um, gluten containing grains like wheat, barley, or rye. Okay, I have the moon in Virgo. Virgo, the maiden holding her sheaf of wheat or barley. Mm. Virgo being associated in the original astrological uh, calendrical system of ancient Mesopotamia to the barley like sowing and harvest, pretty ironic that my moon Chiron conjunction in Virgo means that I can't, <laughs> I can't handle grains. Um, and so when I have, then I have this stellium in Pisces, I have this hyperreactivity, this hypersensitivity affecting my immune system. And I started to notice through all of my tracking that like, that's when I would have a flare. Mm or that's when I would feel particularly sensitive to oh. any food that I was eating, not just like gluten containing mm. grains. Um, and so that is a big time. Whenever the moon is in Virgo or Pisces, I'm really like mm. going to treat myself super gently. And that is a very personal example. That's not going to mm -hmm. probably be applicable for anyone listening to this. <laughs> No, but that is helpful, I think, because it's just like, it's like, okay, here, here's like all kind of the theory. And here's like, you know, how we apply it in a more specific way. So yes, hopefully people realize that, like, if they don't have a very similar chart to you, and maybe even if they do, it doesn't quite map out exactly that way. But well, we have to look at these different tender points of the chart, our own needle <clears throat> placements, other transits that you know, like by the time the moon step, moves into my ninth house in Aries, I'm really like, okay, I'm ready to go. I'm ready. I'll, I'll, I'll launch things mm. on the, as the moon is in Aries and Taurus. That's like my peak time to be super visible. Well, of course, my midheaven is in my ninth house. Um, the themes there are applicable to, you know, what I'm talking about, like launching a new endeavor in my business. Do you have um, Taurus? on the midheaven or I have Aries okay on the midheaven uh like the very some of the last degrees um and so when the when I get past this little downturn of the moon from Virgo to Pisces um then I start to feel really alive again I start to feel really really vibrant I feel more capable I feel stronger I have a better time being publicly facing um but it took me years to learn that one of the beautiful things about astrology, whether we're looking at just like all planetary transits or we're just looking at the solar cycle of the year and then getting more granular and doing the lunar cycle of each month is we get this really beautiful opportunity to practice um, embodying and relating to all of these different aspects of ourselves. Humans have applied, has have used astrology as a language to describe all of the different things that we can experience in our human bodies and in the world. And when we consciously like break down each of these different 12 sectors of our life, I think we can have a more holistic view of how we should actually take care of ourselves. 
which becomes increasingly important in a society that expects us to do the same thing every single day. And it's just not possible. Mm, if yeah. that makes sense. No, that makes total sense. I mean, that's something that comes up a lot is just like this like insane linear, like upward trajectory that our culture is obsessed with versus like what are actually natural rhythms and cycles. And I mean, it's like, you know, we're recording this. It's like a couple of weeks before Christmas. I feel like it's especially incongruent at this time of the year where like everything about your body is like, I just want to go inward. I just want to rest. And like the world is like, but you must prepare and shop and deadline. Yeah. So um, I will say like, as a solar person, after the equinox, I feel betrayed by nature. <laughs> Um, I feel like I have been abandoned by the light and the winter season is the hardest time for me to do anything. Um, and I've learned that through paying attention to my own chart beyond just that total incongruence with the seasonality, right. Where like everything else in nature is going to sleep while we're working nine to five every day with no breaks. Um, I, I know some people who love the winter. My partner is like, like lives for it um feels so great in the winter season I want to be burrowed under the ground under a blanket of moss like hibernating for six months out of the year um and tracking some of these cycles helped me to understand that because I used to give myself a lot of grief in not being able to live up to these standards of society um and now I have a lot more compassion for myself and for others I mean I will say wanting to be burrowed under a blanket of moss in the winter is like an appropriate love letter to winter like to me that is yeah that um it's not like if you want to behave that way in winter it doesn't mean that you're not a winter person to me I'm like that you are a winter person that is the right like impulse to have in this season so <laughs> Yeah, oh, I agree there. When I mean I'm not a winter person, I mean like I want to be in 90 degree heat all day long in the sun. <laughs> well, okay. Yes, that I, I want to be a big cat Leo lounging on a rock, sunning mm, all day long. <laughs> that sounds nice. Um, yeah, it's funny. I'm a Leo rising too, but I'm an Aquarius sun, and there there is okay. something for me about like this blusteriness and the coldness and the stillness that I enjoy um anyway Aquarius is such a different experience of um I, I love <clears throat> contemplating and experiencing the shift from the sun in Capricorn to the sun in Aquarius because there is this element of like renewed hope that mm. you wouldn't really think would be an Aquarius theme but like the sun has been reborn the sun is growing in the sky every day and the sun even though it's not in a happy position in Aquarius um ironically a lot of the plants that you can work with in that season are kind of on that axis of Saturn and the sun um and we maybe we'll we'll touch on that if we talk about some plants of winter because one of my favorite plants of winter is um the plant I always teach about in Aquarius season because it has a relationship with Saturn and the sun and it's like perfectly remedial for the sun in Aquarius. 
Let's, I mean, I'm okay to go to that space right now if you are. It does feel like we're kind of moving there anyway. So if you do want to kind of just go into it and say oh, sure. about these Aquarius plants. As an Aquarius, yeah, so I'm very intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Um, well, so one thing I'll say first for anyone listening is that uh, a common question that I get about like astro herbalism and connecting plants to planets and different seasons of the year is well, what signs rule plants? And in astrology, we don't give signs rulership. We give planets rulership and signs more like correspond to areas of life or even terrain. We often see signs as describing places. Mm -hmm. um, and so we think about like the sun in Aquarius's place. The sun is, the, the sun is, um, in domicile, the sun is at home when it is in Leo. It's the opposite of Aquarius. Aquarius is this time of like frozen snow and ice and cold and there's no warmth. Um, and so the sun doesn't have the best time there. Um, but ironically, what Aquarian, the Aquarian terrain can benefit from the warmth and vitality of the sun. So one of my favorite plants to work with in this time is under the rulership of Aquarius's ruler, Saturn, and it's pine. Um, partially because evergreens are like the only medicinal plants we really have access to in the middle of winter. They never lose their leaves. They're always there. And um, they often, that is part of that like sun Saturn quality where they have this vitality that never leaves. It's kind of a solar thing. They often have a lot of um, cultural significations and folklore with like the returning light after the winter solstice, mm -hmm. which in many different cultures, the winter solstice is this time where like a solar God is reborn. Um, because the sun is starting to increase again, the light in the day. Um, but our evergreen trees are some of the oldest trees that exist on the planet. They have been around for millions, if not billions of years. Pine trees have not changed that much, evolutionarily speaking, since they first emerged in the world. Um, and you hang out with them and they have this kind of grandparent-like energy, like they've seen it all. They've been in the forest forever. They know everyone's name. Um, and pine in particular is extremely warming. It's pungent. You nibble on a little bit and you feel your entire body just like fill with blood. Um, you feel warm from the inside out. You feel like you're alive again um, in this time of extreme cold and sometimes stagnation. And so I love that plant for that time of the year because it kind of, I mean, it wakes our senses up. Um, it keeps us connected to the world when maybe we don't want to go outside because everything's frozen over. Um, and it's also really helpful for like wintertime ailments just to be more practical. <laughs> oh my God, you are giving me so much life right now because like literally my favorite part of Christmas is the tree. Like I am not a person who would ever do a plastic tree. And like every year I take so much joy in, in my tree being in my home with me. Um, and I also, it's interesting too, like with Aquarius being the opposite of Leo and having this particular relationship with solar energy in a time of like frozen 
coldness. Um, I think of it being as like this elder energy, like you said, the pine trees are kind of like, you know, the elders, um, but also how the elders like really do connect us to life, especially in times of like winter, like they're mm -hmm. the holders of the stories and like the, the ones who gather everyone around the fire and like, you know, they have this quality of like warmth that people come and sit in the presence of an elder. So I'm, I'm really loving all that. That's definitely the vibe that I get when I spend time with trees like pine and other evergreen trees. Um, they have, I mean, they have stood the test of time. They really truly have seen so much of this world. Um, what could I learn from a pine tree that's seen millions of humans go through whatever I'm going through? You know, and they're these incredibly resilient trees. Um, they're very strong, even though, like, they're very nimbly. You watch pine trees, you sit back in a forest, especially in the wintertime where there's no padding around them of deciduous trees helping to cut the wind. Um, but you watch the pines and they'll be extremely tall, but in looking like they're going to snap from how much they're swaying in the breeze. But yeah. I've never seen a pine tree fall. And I live in a place where there are a lot of pine trees. Um, they are so sturdy and grounded. Mm. Um, I love spending time with them in the winter and every single part of the, of the tree is used from the resin to the needles, the pollen, the cones, even some cultures um, mill the bark into flour as a survival food. Wow, I didn't know that. Um, there's so much to work with with that plant and it's like, it's going to keep us warm. It helps to increase our internal heat um, and promotes diaphoresis if we're having a fever. It helps with respiratory phlegm and stagnation. One of the things to think about with winter is that um, its energetic quality is the phlegmatic humor, which is cold and moist. And there's this like stagnant moisture with the fixed sign of Aquarius, even though Aquarius is kind of a drier sign because it's um, ruled by Saturn. In the, in the elemental seasonal experience, there's often this frozen moisture, um, which is that fixed quality. And pine helps to break that up. So like the sun being reborn at the solstice, giving us hope that we're gonna get through this winter and our crops will grow again. Um, I, I see pine as another like guide and supporter of that when we're experiencing this desolation in the deep winter. I love that too, because I think a lot of times people associate in modern rulership, there's like this Uranian quality to Aquarius as well, where it's like destabilizing and like, like it does fragment. But then when you think about it in that context of like where something does need to be shaken up and broken up, like in a positive way, like where there is stagnation or where there is like stickiness, um, so it's a positive way to look at that quality of Aquarius that I think sometimes people are afraid of, of like it coming in and shaking stuff up. Aquarius was a sign that took me forever to understand. And then I, I have a Mars Mercury conjunction in Aquarius. Oh boy. And then, <laughs> uh, and you know, it's my seventh house and I do a lot of one-on-one -on -one work with people, which is what I really see. I mean, people see 
um, different types of work as all over the chart, but so much of my work is very like seventh house oriented beyond just re relationships like long-term partnership, which is what a lot of people look at the seventh house. I mean, that's there for me as well. But when I started really interrogating that Mars Mercury conjunction, I was like, oh, Aquarius isn't hard for me. It's just, it comes so naturally to me. Mm. Um, I'm very familiar with what this feels like. It's almost like it's hard for me to get enough distance to be able to observe it from the outside in. Um, really meditating on the themes of the season though especially as an herbalist, as someone who's naturally going to connect with astrology through the world of plants, because that's my primary like orientation to the world, um, helped me really to understand those qualities and helped me to foster a better relationship with Saturn, um, which of course just comes as you get older, I think. But um, Aquarius is such a different feeling than Capricorn Saturn, which is this, I mean, the, di the diurnal, nocturnal, dichotomy there is a totally different felt experience and I think in Aquarius season you can really like actually physically observe that in the land which is why I often in my own practice of talking about plants and planets and the connections between the two I really try to root people into looking at their embodied experience of being in the world and like looking at the seasons and how it feels in their body um, and what's happening in the land around them because it really helps us like go beyond that theory of how astrology works <laughs> um, and see it and live it and feel it. I love, I actually really love that idea for just understanding that deep archetypal energy of a sign is just like paying attention to the world, paying attention to how you feel when the sun is in that sign. I think that's really beautiful. Um, I'm going to back up a little bit um, and just ask the question that I think I want to ask is how is just herbalism different from astro herbalism? Like what happens when we weave the plants and the planets together? Yeah. So herbalism and astrology are their own separate di disciplines. Herbalism is technically defined as the study of the medicinal and therapeutic uses of plants. That's it. <laughs> very simple um herbalism as a practice can look a million different ways but yeah. it's just the study of the therapeutic uses of plants then we have like ethnobotany which is more about how people work with plants so I would also consider myself to be more of like an ethnobotanist herbalist um and then astrology of course is its own thing but when we're looking at the historical record of connecting astrology and herbalism together there's no linear tradition it's it didn't like just it, it wasn't like people were out here saying that they were astro herbalists 2000 years ago that's not the case um astrology is cultural and herbalism is cultural mm -hmm. and so whenever we see especially in like the origins of what we consider traditional astrology um the system is coming out of ancient Mesopotamia originally, and then lots of interfacing with Egyptian astrology, um, South Asian astrology, Hellenistic astrology. Like there's so many influences in the astrology that we typically think of today. Um, but in ancient Mesopotamia, we do have records of there being this tradition of working with 
plants, but also minerals and stones um, and animals with planetary influence to create healing materia. Um, and so what my observation has been in kind of tracking astro herbalism throughout the history throughout history is that wherever people were incorporating astrology into their worldview, they were likely all seeing everything mm. in that their life through the that language. So, you know, especially in like the Islamic period of astrology, where we see all of these Persian astrologers and Arab astrologers and Jewish astrologers at that time, and Christians and lots of people writing about astrology, a lot of them were physicians and astrologers. And up until very recent history, like 110 years ago, physicians were herbalists, all of them. Mm -hmm. So there was no separation, um, which is why also when you're going back and you're reading old texts, they don't really like explain these plant planet connections. Um, in a way that's helpful for the modern reader. They'll just say like, pine is a plant of Saturn. I mean, I'm pretty sure like Al Biruni probably has it under something else. And then Willie Lily has it under something else. And then Culpepper will say something completely different. Um, but let's say that's the example because that's what we were just talking about. They won't explain why. It's just an understood thing because people of the time understood what pine was all about and understood what Saturn was all about which can be really confusing for people who want to like learn about astro herbalism because you're reading through it and you're like, but how did you get there? Yeah. <laughs> make it makes sense. Yeah. So it is this ancient tradition, but it's not a linear tradition. And in order to, at least in my opinion of practicing bringing these disciplines together, you have to have like a really good foundation in both separately to then be able to see these connections. Astrology can be so many things. It could be an archetypal language. It can be a way of, of tracking time. It can be um, working with gods, which is a very historical perspective of connecting to astrology or um, observing the sky as a form of like omen gathering and divination. Herbalism also has its own language. Uh, combining those two requires a lot of intellectual study and embodied experience. Um, otherwise we just do like correspondence lists. You know, we say pine is an herb of Saturn. What's the utility of that and why, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to think of it as combining two different languages because um, there is a lot of complexity there, but I think there's also a lot of potential for really beautiful cross-pollination, like just thinking of the ways that actual human languages kind of weave into each other and how that enriches both. Um, you use the word utility and I think that's where I want to go next because you're right correspondence lists like it can be fun for someone who likes organization and who is like Virgo like, yeah, matches, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I mean there also is this Virgo quality of like well how do we make it useful like um so I guess that's my question is when we bring astrology and herbalism together 
is there a way in this, I'm going to ask it this way. I don't know if this is the most elegant way to ask it. Is there a way that it becomes more useful than like astrology by itself or herbalism by itself um, in any context? Yeah. So I get what your reservations on like, cause I, I come up with the same question, right? It's like usefulness. Wow. I'm, I'm like distilling down whole people, <laughs> you know, all these plant individuals. And these planetary massive spirits, I'm just like dwindling them down to usefulness. That feels so wrong. So that's yeah. not the intention. <laughs> that's feel like extractive or like hierarchy. Yeah. Like I'm just like. Mm. But it's also helpful to be able to understand pe- to or to help um, people to understand like well, why am I teaching astro herbalism? What's the point? And I'm constantly kind of grappling with this because for me the point is it helps me feel deeply embedded in the world. Like it helps me feel wildly connected to this bigger place um it helps me kind of organize myself in the relationships that I have with the world I also think it's cool (laughs) like I will be the first to say that I just think it's awesome (laughs) it's not really the most useful thing but connecting these two things re-enchants your life in a way it makes the life way makes the world way more alive and I love that and I think there's usefulness in that um especially as we're living in such a disenchanted society that is always turning us away from each other Mm. my practice of astro herbalism turns me towards these other beings it helps me weave myself into community with plants and planets and other people oh my gosh that's like beautiful that's my venusian reason why i love (laughs) astrophoralism but like to break it down to how people have used this um historically and less so in the present day but you know i have some colleagues that are employing astroherbalism in their work um historically like way back in the babylonian period People were using astrology um, as a timing mechanism for guiding their agricultural calendar. Like that's the original, or like, that's the origin story of the zodiac signs, the ultimate as we know them. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like literally a calendar. Yeah, it's not archetypes. It's a guidepost of how we're going to survive the year. Um, and so there's that, there's that like very deeply woven connection between agriculture and um, astrological timing. That's extremely practical for your society. If you live in a place with a four season year, this is where we start to get kind of, um, we start to have to think of these big questions of, oh, well, is astrology actually as universal as we tend to portray it as, um, because something that I come up against, especially with my students, is well, I'm talking about an astrological year here where I live in zone 7B. What about people who live in the Southern Hemisphere or mm. who live in a place that only has two seasons in a year? Um, so it's not always universal, in my opinion, but agriculture is one way. In the Mesopotamian period as well, they were working with timing to help create specific healing potions with plants literally like calling on the gods as planets to imbue these things they were creating um, with healing properties 
this is like theurgical work. And we see this living on with a lot of astrologers today who are getting more and more into crafting astro-magical materia. Many thanks to Caitlin Coppock from Sphere and Sundry for definitely pioneering that work. Um, and then we have medical astrologers who are looking at astrological timing to help them understand disease patterns or looking at someone's chart and seeing potential predispositions and working with plants to help fortify those. Mm -hmm. That requires a lot of skill and a lot of understanding of how the body works. Um, you can't just look at, like I have the moon in Virgo, so maybe that means that I'm gonna have a little bit of a different relationship with nourishment and a tender digestive process. That happens to be true for me, um, but, just get, like recommending me an herb for that without doing my due diligence on everything else about my person wouldn't be a wise choice and could like start to be unethical. Um, so yeah, we have all of these different ways in which people can work with it. I would say in my practice, I primarily work with astrological transits to help me guide like when I'm harvesting and planting certain herbs, when I'm making different types of herbal preparations. Um, I will use it in my practice when I'm working with a client and let's say I've come up with like 25 different herbs that would be good for what they're going through, but I wanna whittle the list down to three. I might take a look at their chart and let that help guide my process, but certainly not dictate it over my clinical skills. Um, so there's so many different ways in which it can be legitimately useful for our life. Yeah. I also think about, uh, well, I love what you said about it, just helping us turn towards each other and like deepen our understanding of relating and helping us, like I said, re-enchant the world. Cause I think that's really important. I also think a little bit like astrology can be a little ungrounded like because it's so like up there and plants are like so down here and so like tactile mm -hmm. and sensual so it can be it's almost like this really beautiful sandwiching like that's something um, else that I really love about it too like I mean for one I think we as astrologers have a tendency to spend too much time on astral gold rather than actually outside at night looking at the sky so true, <laughs> so true. Oh. Guilty. Um, guilty, as <laughs> guilty too but last night was I standing in my window looking at the moon and Mars just having a little smooch yes I was um it is really ungrounding and especially because so much of us are living in places where we can't see the stars the way our ancestors did that's that's a problem mm -hmm. um that's going to disconnect us from the sky the average person can't see the milky way so sad I can't where I live unless it's really, really dark and you can kind of see it faintly. Yeah. Um, so we can maybe see Jupiter in the sky. It's been really bright for a couple of months. In my telescope, I can see his moons, which is cool. But like, you're up there. Great, what does that mean for me? How do I actually connect to your virtues and your teachings in a more embodied way? And then I spend time with something like burdock root, which is a very classic Jupiterian plant. And I can actually see Jupiter embodied. Mm. It's tangible. Um, I can imbibe that plant and I can feel how Jupiter's qualities are working on my own person. Um, 
the world becomes alive in a way that you're walking around in the world and it's like the planets painted their their qualities mm. all over the place and you just start to see it in everything that's a beautiful image the planets painting their qualities all over everything it's kind of how I think about it sometimes especially when I'm um, like imagining an origin story for a plant yeah you know like if at that moment when the world came into being and now this is my imagination not like a folk tale or anything <laughs> but if at that moment when the world came into being you know we have the same amundi which helps to organize our schema of rulership what was jupiter's role in the creation of our natural world what did jupiter bring to the world what did venus bring to the world what did mars bring to the world um and we see that kind of thinking throughout astrological thought and philosophical thought of these even this comes into herbalism talk about shared language of each of the planets having energetic qualities based around hot cold wet dry that's the same language we use in herbalism yeah i love um I love thinking about like the planets all contributing to the origin of the world. It's so like such a democratic, um, <laughs> diverse process versus like the traditional, you know, Christian origin story, which is like just God was in charge of everything. But like, it is beautiful to think about these like, you know, 10 incredibly diverse beings just being like, this is my gift. Like, this is what I have to offer. Um, and it sounds kind of like woo-woo and out there, but it, there's nothing on this planet that didn't come from stardust, you know? <laughs> All of, we have a very unique atmosphere, which is cool, but the qualities that make up this planet can be found elsewhere in space. It's not so far-fetched to think about. Even the moon is theorized to be a part of the earth, come from the same stuff. Yeah, I think that's one thing that I think that we've lost a little bit with astrology, but I think like it really is one of those places where like tangible scientific, like observable, like environmental stuff really does connect with more like spiritual mythological, like storytelling stuff um, in a way where they, it's not like completely separated in this like cartoon, mm -hmm. like spirit over here, like, observable science over here and so. say it was that separation in the so-called enlightenment mm. that <laughs> schismed <laughs> that like schismed us and wrecked astrology you know like yeah. turned astrology into a pseudoscience um that was the moment of disenchantment for the majority of the western world um it's totally manufactured Mm -hmm. and of course I mean, we, I mean we could debate like the issues of modernity all day long that came from that type of thinking and the in industrialization all that kind of stuff but clearly the way that we're living is not working for us another reason why I teach astroherbalism from a very relational standpoint which is what we've really been talking about here is like connecting with them as part of our community um because I really want people to care about the world it's pretty fucked up and we're like absolutely destroying nature 
all the time. Even you, I even hate using the word nature. How you really feel? Yeah, I mean, I really hate using the word nature because it implies that there's a separation between us and this other thing, which is a made-up construct that had to be made up by um, industrialization to justify the exploitation. Like natural resources, what does that mean? They're resources we depend on to survive. They aren't things we can just exploit. Mm -hmm. They will run out, you know? <laughs> we are seeing that happen. Um, I think there are a ton of different ways to come into a deeper relationship with the world and into reciprocity. As someone who loves astrology and as someone who loves herbalism, those are my doorways and the ways in which I can guide others into caring more deeply about the world. But like, how would the world be different? Astrology aside or herbalism aside, if just everyone recognized the plants are people. It would be very different. Um, I think I want to keep talking about this. I did just add a question this morning to the list of questions. I wrote, how can learning to relate to plants and to planets help us relate better to other humans? And I do think we've been talking about that as like your work and this kind of work really being around being in right relationship and learning to relate better. Um, and how it's not even so much about the plants or the planets, but like you said, they're access points for like, learning to be um, in good relationship with what's around us and what's available mm -hmm. to us. So. Yeah, I mean, that's that's all of it. Um, and like you said before, astrology and her just what we view in astrology, plants or planets and fixed stars, right? And other celestial objects or beings, I don't wanna call them objects, but mm -hmm. uh, they're out there. And they're pretty static, you know, they're moving, but they're out there, um, a little bit separate from us physically, <laughs> like in our physical reality. Plants are right here. They're super tangible. We rely on them in every single aspect of our life and we absolutely take them for granted. Um, like all of us are in houses made of wood, probably. Yeah. That's, that came from a plant. We eat plants every day, I hope. <laughs> they fuel our lives. People tend to focus on like plants help us breathe, sure. But they do so much more than that. And we need to care about them. Like our actual survival as a species depends on it. It's not, I think some people encounter my work and they're like, oh, that's beautiful and lovely. And yeah, being in relationship. But what's the point of being in relationship? It's mutualism. If we are not, we might not make it. And I know that's kind of dark and <laughs> a little intense, but that's really what I'm thinking about when I'm um, doing this work. I, um, I wonder... This might be a really big question, but just in terms of, cause I think there is a small amount of people that are like drawn to this kind of stuff, you know? And then I do look at the majority of our culture 
and how they're just like so not interested in like learning about plants or astrology or like they're just literally like I just need to get mine you know like I just need enough money to do this to go on this vacation in the end and I'm gonna order DoorDash for dinner and so my I guess my question is like what what's the best way to get the most amount of people on board even just doing the smallest thing or like just shifting in a really easy to use the word easy but like does that question make sense yeah some people will be like yeah like I'm super into changing my whole relationship to plants like I want to take all of Sarah's courses and then um but from like maybe a better way about or not a better way, but a different way of asking this is if like, if we were going to tweak like school curriculum, like the standard school curriculum, that's going to be offered to everyone, but like not in a way where we completely, you know, like uproot it, what would be, what would be the thing that we would change just to like bend a little bit more in this direction? Yeah. I mean, it's a hard question. So one thing that I do want to like clearly state is that what we're talking about, this relationship to and with nature and recognizing that we are a part of nature, that is the predominant worldview among indigenous peoples throughout the entire world. It is the Western world and all of its hubris and structures of supremacy that is driving us all into the ground So this is something that I often come up against in herbalism because people um, will come into herbalism and be like, oh, we're remembering these ancient ways that that we lost, that were taken from us. And the people who say that are usually white people living in Western culture. Mm -hmm. I I am am, uh, mixed and I'm I'm a first generation American. I'm a Persian herbalist. I come from a very different cultural background that's very community oriented. My response is always, you lost it. The people of the global majority never did. We're still here. We're still living these worldviews. We're still relating to the world in this way. So I really do want to name that as like, this is a problem in Western society that has separated us from the world for a variety of reasons uh, from like Christian supremacist structures throughout history that have justified the exploitation of the planet under false doctrines and mistranslations of biblical works, all sorts of stuff. We could talk about all the different reasons why we're in the situation we're in, but it's like a small group of people destroying the rest of the world for all of us. Um, I think we can, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that's actually really hopeful because I think like, <laughs> you know, because like it like when it's not everyone, you know, yeah. when you're in these systems, you're like all of humanity is as fucked as we are. Like we're like humanity is so fucked up. But then when you put it that way, you're like, oh, cool. Like actually, as much as we're destroying the world, like a lot of these other people are holding it and they're not destroying it and they're holding the old ways and so I mean the biodiversity indigenous people worldwide steward 80% of the world's biodiversity. So like one give the world back to indigenous people who do not have land sovereignty at this time. Um I think we those of us who are living outside of indigenous structures 
for whatever reason, losing them through colonization, forced assimilation, et cetera, we can learn, respectfully learn from indigenous peoples around the world and how they relate to the world. Um, I think a lot of people, like if we're going back down to the school system, we need to change the way that we talk about nature. We need to change the way that we talk about our role in nature because a lot of people will dip into this stuff too get into plants or something and do eco-fascism where they start saying, okay, well, people are the problem. We need less people. Or we need to just bar off all of these spaces and just do conservation and just save everything in national parks. You know, like humans need to stop intervening with nature. But that's never been an appropriate response we have uh, we have an ecological role on this planet. We have a purpose in the many layered relationships of nature that we have to fulfill. National parks are not a solution. Closing ourselves off from nature, thinking that nature will self-regulate itself is not necessarily a solution. Um, this became really apparent as, uh, especially in the so-called United States of people talking about the problems with like the National Park Service where they just closed off these parks for, from human intervention um, to celebrate the biodiversity of these places. But the only reason why that biodiversity exists is because indigenous people were for it, like stewarding these parks as their gardens. Mm -hmm. So I think people need to get interested in fulfilling our ecological niche. Yeah, there is an it is interesting. Um, it's always so much about separation. And I think sometimes we're just like, you know, like conservation is a type of separate separation or we're just like, oh, it's like, it's so pristine and it's so fragile. And like, you know, don't take any rocks or anything. Like you have to leave them all exactly where you find them. And like, um, and there is a way in which that's like not active enough or not alive enough you know it's still very much like nature is this like very separate thing that we can like walk through but then you know that's all we can do with it is just like walk through it and then like don't touch it and um it's seeing nature as a backdrop of our life rather than a world we live in um but systemically, I mean, we would have to dismantle structures of supremacy culture. We would have to um, kill capitalism and actually respect tribal sovereignty. Like I'm talking about the United States, which has violated every treaty it's ever made. Um, we'd have to give nature personhood, which is happening in some places. There are some laws being pushed through that's like recognizing the personhood of rivers and all of these different things, I mean, it would require large scale systemic change and that can feel daunting and there can be a sense of powerlessness for all of us who really do care about nature and want to share this with other people, want to get them on board. Um, I don't think that I will impact millions of people, but if I can help even just one more person remember that they are a part of the world and through whatever astrology herbalism making them dinner on a wednesday night like 
um, if I can help support people in that process of recognizing that they can care for the world and the world will care for them back, I'm like, I'm doing my work. Mm -hmm. I think that's the ultimate issue is people, uh, our, our society has eroded our trust in each other. And so of course that's going to extend to other relationships. Um, I don't think people are necessarily always aware of how much the world takes care of us. Yeah, I can see that. Um, I think even in like my kids go to a nature school, like technically, you know, they spend all their time outside, but it can still be very like fear-based, like don't touch that, don't eat that. Like, um, we don't know what that is. Um, And I do, um, this lack of trust in each other, I think is super painful. I was just having a moment with my apartment complex where there was like a fee where I was like, this is just the like incorrectly charged. Can you please take it off? And like the burden of proof was completely on me to, you know, they were like, well, we need to see your like Excel. And it's really turned in. It's so funny because like in the legal system, we pride ourselves on like innocent until proven guilty. But I think in society, don't general, treat each other that way. it's very much guilty until proven innocent. Yeah. Like you, you have yeah. to prove. So it's, and it's very painful. It's very painful. What a massive intergenerational trauma response, you know, and you're, you're right. It's totally true with, with plants, especially, um, People are so afraid of nature and like, yeah, be reasonable. Like don't, don't be reckless in nature. Be, be very, yeah. yeah, be like, be like very aware that um, you could die out there, you know, yeah. <laughs> not just from eating the wrong thing, but you go on a trail by yourself and you fall, you know, like you gotta be wise. Um, but the average person has, complete blinders up to even the plants around them. I'm that friend because I'm the herbalist where I'm on a walk with someone and I, it, I, it will take me four hours to do a one mile loop because I'm like, oh, look at this plant and that plant. And this is this their name and this is their ecological role. And this is how it can benefit us. And I'm always pointing out all of these plants, but it'll be even like the weeds that are in every single lawn in my neighborhood and people don't know what they are and they're afraid of them. Yeah. I guess, well, so let me just ask very practically, like if someone is in like an urban environment or like even a suburban environment, um, how do we just learn more about the plants surrounding us. I know there's like an app that I've played with. It's called like iNaturalist where like you yeah. get a picture and it tells you and I kind of love that, but what are it's your great. thoughts? Um, the people are always surprised when I tell them that I live two miles from downtown city center of Atlanta, but I live in an urban environment and I grow 150 plants in my backyard. Um, <laughs> Or more, probably. I don't. I, there's not like a. If I go to the garden center, I just bought one hundred and fifty dollars worth of plants, so um, I'm always adding more. But even before that, I grew up in the suburbs. I used to live on a third floor, six hundred square foot apartment with a balcony that I had like covered in plants. You can invite plants into your life no matter where you are, as long as they have access to sunlight. You're good. You can grow something. 
Um, so I don't want people to think that like, oh, I'm not in the country. I can't get to know plants. There are plants around you. I think the thing is really carving out time in your life to slow down and get curious. Um, and th even thinking more broadly about this whole relationship thing. How do you build relationships with plants or planets, if that's your thing? How do you build relationships with other people? You have to spend time with them and be curious about them and get to know them. I think this is just making me think too, like, even if you didn't have access to like academic information, like apps and like the names of things, like you can still just get to know something in a very organic way, just by like being with it, interacting with it. Like, even if you don't know like the official name of this plant, you can get to know a lot about this plant, you know, just by I like watching. Everyone listening to this knows what a dandelion is. I would assume, I would hope <laughs> they're everywhere. Even if you never intend on taking dandelion and learning about its many medicinal uses, you could just spend a whole day walking around somewhere and seeing all the different places dandelion grows. And it's like, okay, 50% of the dandelion population I saw today grows in the cracks of sidewalks. 20% of the population grows in unsprayed lawns. 20% of the population grows in bright, sunny spaces. Only 10% of the population is growing in shady spots. It's not doing so well. I just didn't see as many dandelions there as I did in disturbed ground, like um, gravel and sidewalks and bright, sunny spots. What does that tell you about dandelions preferences? Or I saw these animals visiting this plant but these animals avoided it or the flowers opened when the sun came out and closed when it got gloomy. Um, like you don't have to learn about the usefulness of a plant to learn about them. Mm -hmm. You can just observe them and see what role they're playing in their environment. Maybe you notice there are a lot of dandelions on a recent work site where they disturbed all of the ground. Why might that be? Like use our, uh, this is, and this is science. This is, <laughs> scientific inquiry of observation, um, using everything we know about the world to really start critically thinking and inferring why these plants may be doing this thing. And then you like, you go and do some academic research on dandelion, you read a monograph about it, you learn that it's one of the first plants to colonize disturbed soils because it replenishes the soil and rebuilds soil diversity. Um, it accumulates biotoxins and pollutants so it helps to actually like heal soil which is important information to know if you want to eat it because you don't want to like eat a dandelion that's been growing interesting um you learn that even if you pull up the whole plant if just a little piece of root stays in the ground it's going to regenerate itself so it's this like incredibly resilient plant mm. super tenacious well how can we learn about resilience and surviving against the odds from something like dandelion. Yeah, and I I think too, like just going back to what you were saying before about like turning towards something, this just like just beginning to be curious and beginning to be open to observation is um there's just such a gift even just in that and just like I don't even know what I expect to learn about what I observe, but like 
I'm I'm going to be towards the world in this very different way than I have been. I also think it can be really great to just like be in nature with kids because they're always curious. I don't have children and I don't spend a lot of time with children, but my yard is like the neighborhood trail for people to walk through. So I'm regularly seeing my neighbor's kids. And whenever I'm out in the yard, like picking violets or something or doing something in the garden and some kids run by these, they're always wondering who this plant is. Mm. you know and um like they're inherently curious they're looking down they're seeing what's around them and fitting that into their view of the world as they're growing and the amount of kids that I've like taught now that violets are edible and then they just grab it and eat it they don't even think about it they're not like this is gonna hurt me (laughs) do I need to be afraid of this I think you can eat that and they eat it and they're like amazed at this flower that is growing in their front yard that they see all the time and now they know who they are um I think all of us have these capabilities of seeing the world in this way but for many of us especially as adults it's been kind of forced out of us for whatever reason Mm, that is sad and I completely agree um I am like, I have two kids and I'm definitely guilty of like taking them on a walk and being like, yo, that's like the 10th roly poly we've seen. Move it along. Um, but there is a beauty in that curiosity and also beauty in that trust, you know, where you're like, yeah, you can eat this. And they're like, totally like not even going to question it. Like, and this is just how I'm going to move forward from now on, as opposed to, I think, I think of myself being told that I could eat violets and then being like, okay. Like this exact violet that you're showing me, I will eat. But like, do I trust myself in the future? Like when you're not around, like, do I trust that this is a violet? You know, like, so there's still more inhibition there. Um, And anyone who wants to learn, I mean, get like a really good field guide and go out with people who know plants. The best way, that's the best way to learn it. It's just to get the encouragement from someone else. Like, yes, it's okay. You can do it. Go ahead. (laughs) Um having that kind of like reparenting with someone who knows a little bit more than you about this thing. It's really helpful. But I interface with students every day who are totally terrified to take herbs, even though they know it's like totally safe. And it used to be me too. I used to be afraid of nettles, which was crazy. (laughs) Besides like they can sting you. Um, I used to be afraid of actually taking the dose that was recommended because I didn't know what it was going to do to my body. Yeah. And I would take the teeniest amount just to observe that it was safe. And then now I like don't even measure anything anymore unless I really need to. There are some herbs that um, you should be careful of. They can have toxic qualities, but that's not the weeds growing in your backyard most of the time with the exception of like pokeweed. That's a really common weed that um, you maybe should call poison control if your kid ate 50 berries off of it. So it's important for people to know that too. It's important for people to be able to recognize the plants around them and know what's safe and know what's not safe so that they can make good decisions when something does happen. But the trust can be built over time. Um, Just like astrology, herbalism is not something you're going to learn from reading one book. Oh, cat on desk. (laughs) Don't jump up here, please you have to spend a lot of time like embodying this work 
I've been practicing herbalism for 13 years. Um, now it's pretty second nature. But when I first started, I was afraid of nettle, one of the gentlest, safest herbs out there. Yeah. Which is an herb of Mars, for any curious. An herb of Mars. Yeah, we can say more about nettle. But I also, like, I just, I love this idea of, um, you know, again, just contrasting herbalism and astrology. I think astrology can be very cerebral, like, unless you're a practitioner and you're, like, really in people's charts and, like, but also really in their lives to make sure that, like, what you're seeing in the chart is something um, that's helpful and accurate and you are developing your art. Um, I think astrology, a lot of the times you can just be like in the theory and in the ideas. Um, and, and it just gets dwindled down to like typology rather than this beautiful, yeah, holistic system. But I think with herbalism, you know, there comes a point where it becomes hard to ignore that like, oh, I've been like in theory, like technically, you know, I know about foraging or like I've read about this stuff, but then like, you know, put your money where your mouth is like do you we're you know really beginning to like engage with the plants in a more like really um in a way where your knowledge is really being tested and your trust is really being tested um this is a challenging thing for me because I teach online yeah and so every month I send my students our monthly monograph like this month we were studying dandelions so I just finished a editing my assistant helped me write it but um, I just published our dandelion monograph um I give people the monograph it tells them all the intellectual information about it I give them prompts to go and work with the plan I give them recipes also to have some guiding light on like well how do I work with it the students who are the most like who interact the most with me and who have given me the best feedback and who are I can see these teachings tangibly changing their life they're the ones going out and picking the dandelion when I publish the monograph but it's everyone in there doing it I don't know yeah some of it is self-directed even if you're going to go and take an in-person herbal program which is largely inaccessible because of ongoing the ongoing pandemic right now um Okay, you're going to go for one week in the month and you're going to harvest a bunch of herbs. Well, what about all those other weekends that you're at home? Are you still living this practice on your own? You have to cultivate that self-trust and trust in the plants. Mm. I think it can be hard, like, you know, speaking of dandelions, it, being like an urban plant or like absorbing toxins around them. Like, how do you know if the dandelions you're picking have been sprayed with pesticide or not? You know, like, how do you like... It's pretty easy to see, actually. Okay, um, cool. Yeah, it's... So, one, you can... If you're harvesting in a public place, you can call your parks department and ask what their policy is for managing the land. A lot of places, like here in Atlanta, do not spray. Okay. And the places that do are places that have a lot of kudzu, because, like, we... That's our perpetual... Um, Bane down here is kudzu and it's really impossible to eradicate unless you spray it with poison that's just a fact it's unfortunate but that's just the way that it is um it grows like multiple feet per day Jeez. so in the summertime <clears throat> and it decimates the landscape it is um in my opinion 
a good reflection of exalted Jupiter. <laughs> um, it also has really great medicinal and food aspects. We should we should eat it more, but we don't. Um, is it it's, a Jupiterian plant, or I think so. This isn't a plant that's in any of the traditional literature, okay. um, but my consistent observation with it is that it is a plant of Jupiter. Okay. And I've even tracked like. I pulled the theoretical charts of when it was brought to the U.S. And it was like when Jupiter was in Cancer. Okay, interesting. Because <laughs> um, it was brought here as a plant to help control erosion. And then it has no natural predators. So it just takes over the world. Uh, but it also has, like, it's one of its strongest specific indications in medical herbalism is for alcohol dependence and like supporting the liver which is traditionally an area of jupiter so we have this quality of like it helps with overindulgence but it's also a little bit of an overindulgent plant um i see that in astrology a lot where like the poison is also the medicine or like the problem is also the solutions yeah yeah um so places like that where you have like a big population of an invasive plant, they might be spraying, mm -hmm. but usually they just spray a whole area. So you'll be able to see like a line mm -hmm. where everything is dead mm -hmm. and then stuff is alive. The plants will look crispy. They'll look burned. Um, mm -hmm. They'll be splotchy. It, it looks unnatural. It doesn't look like that plant just died. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's a pretty good indicator, but you can call, you can ask. Um, we have general rules as well. Like you shouldn't harvest anything, especially leafy and leafy plants and roots from like railroads or within 50 feet of roadsides. But we have some scientific evidence that suggests that like flowers and berries don't really accumulate toxins. And there was even a study on like elderflower, which is a very common urban plant here. It goes everywhere. Wherever there's water, it's there. There was a study done, I want to say in like Finland or Norway, one of the Scandinavian countries about urban populations of elderflower. And they found that actually the elderflowers that were exposed to more toxins in the air had didn't accumulate them to levels that would be harmful for human consumption. And they actually responded to those pollutants by producing more antioxidants. Oh my so goodness, that's beautiful. Those flowers there in these urban populations were better for humans because they had more antioxidants in them. So this is something else to remember with plants too, is a lot of the constituents that benefit us as human and plants are constituents those plants created to protect themselves and help them thrive. Hmm. Um, but yeah, they're just like good foraging rules. You know, so your in your courses, you, we learn about these foraging rules. Is that right? Like if I have a little written guide on like ethical wild crafting, where I briefly talk about those things in my forum that everyone gets access to. Um, but also if you have your own backyard, you can get your soil tested, which I would recommend doing in general, if you want to like garden and stuff. Mm. Um, and it's usually pretty cheap. You can just like send it, send a soil sample to your county extension, pay a little fee and they'll tell you what's up. And they'll also tell you like what nutrients your soil is lacking and how you can support it. Um, 
The other thing that's important to do if you're going to go out there and pick plants from the wild and not grow them yourself is to like actually get to know your landscapes and spend years with them to really see the health of these different plant populations with the exception of invasives. If you're going to go use kudzu for medicinal use and you know that it hasn't been sprayed, oh my God, take as much as you want, you know, <laughs> but wow. some plants that have more fragile ecological status, you have to be careful with. Yeah, I think that's a, just a important, because I do think a lot of, like, you don't realize how much this system influences the way you do stuff, like, but capitalism is just so much about, like, results, <laughs> like, I need results, um, and yeah, I think, I think there's just a lot to be said where, like, I mean, I, you tell me if this is right, to me, as someone who is wants to be really careful about like entering into indigenous language or indigenous teaching, there's just this idea of the approach being really important and of like the initial listening being really important before like you take anything or before you even produce anything. So just this idea that you can begin this type of study or engagement without necessarily having to like fucking cook up dandelions on your first day or like do a like a thing that you can Instagram. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Oh God. Don't get me started on Instagram herbalism. <laughs> really want to hear how I really feel about lots of things. Um <laughs> yeah, I mean we have this idea that we have to go out and we have to even pick more than we need. Um to like get it all get the most of our day by harvesting everything and filling up baskets and baskets. Um, I think what you're referring to here in terms of like how we approach plants, this is something that um, Robin Wall Kimmer has talked about a lot in her work, especially in braiding sweetgrass of like the honorable harvest and um, building relationships with plants and reciprocity and like asking for permission before you harvest plants. And so I know that that's very much part of her indigenous worldview and other indigenous herbalists that I from various nations that I have engaged with. But um to de to um step away from that as well because I don't want to appropriate their teachings. Um, you can it's just the right thing to do to like really observe a landscape and the environment that you want to step into, and to see how you taking from it is going to impact it. And I think some people, a lot of herbalists, have kind of taken some of um Robin's work and said we need to have this whole ritual this protocol of asking plants for permission before we take them and a lot of people bypass um that practice they'll just say oh I'm asking the plant for permission I, I've made an offering and I'm going to take it but they don't really necessarily listen for the no because a lot of people don't recognize what the no could look like when do you know when a plant is telling you no don't pick me and um, in all my years of wildcrafting, I don't wildcraft much at all. Um, but in all my years of foraging, that no can come from there's less of this plant here than there was last year. Um, this is not a plant that I, if I harvest it, it's not going to regenerate itself. A lot of our wildcrafting, what we really want to do is we want to simulate other animals in nature who are who are going to be chewing on things and rustling things. And a lot of that actually stimulates the plants to grow. 
So we want to harvest in a way that supports that process, just like other animals would do. When you rip up a bunch of roots, you killed the plant. That's it. It can't regenerate itself. Mm. You can spread seeds, but if that plant has like a low germination rate and doesn't really propagate well from seeds, you might've just depleted a lot of its population because of your own selfishness. And so I don't think it's, for me personally, my practice is not just to approach a plant and ask for its permission. Um, my process is to spend years observing a landscape before I take anything besides an invasive plant. And that's a very, I, I, from what I have gathered from some of my colleagues and other teachers, I know that's a little bit of a different approach. Um, but again, it's using observational science to help dictate how I move forward in my relationship with these beings. I almost feel this is like such a fucked up thing to say, but like the barometer of like whether or not you're truly engaging in an indigenous practice is like how much your little like capitalist heart is horrified at the inefficiency of it. Like, I'm like, the fuck you're telling me I can't pick a plant till I've like watched it for three years. That's not going to work. But like another part of me is like, um, that is really respecting biological time. And that is really respecting like these cycles that are bigger than you and like your, you know, little rash desire to do a thing. So I love Now we've that. looped back to we're living on Saturn's time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, to me, this is like Taurus time too. It's that Venusian, yeah. like that just like stubborn, I'm going to do it when it feels right. I'm going to do it when it feels good and not like a minute before. Well, and so even layering back, like, okay, how is um, astrological timing useful? When you spend years tracking transit cycles, especially some of our shorter ones like Venus, you know, and the sun and Mercury, I mean, you're going to track a Saturn cycle in the landscape. That's going to take, a, <laughs> you're only going to get three of those in your life if you're lucky, you know? Um, That's so, how you're doing it right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, something like a Venus cycle, you can observe cycles of like blooms and different things in a Venus cycle several, many times over in your lifetime. When you spend enough time kind of cataloging stuff like that, which is something I encourage my students to do. I encourage them in every... I, I start with the solar season because it's a year. It's like pretty tangible. It's not too big. It won't scare everyone away. Um, I encourage them for every month to really like pay attention. What's growing, what's blooming, what's dying, what animals are coming and create their own seasonal calendar that they can refer back to. I've been doing this for years. Um, and so like, Sagittarius season isn't just Sagittarius season. It's the season of the red winged blackbirds coming yeah. for the winter, you know, or Taurus season isn't just Taurus season. It's the season of the first rose bloom, mm. all, all these different things. When you're tracking things like that, then you can start to get a really good feel for the land. Now, unfortunately, I will say in doing this for 12 years now, you will also get a really tangible view of climate collapse. Mm because my notes this year look vastly different than they did 10 years ago yes. and that's freaky but it also motivates me to care more so I mean and I also I think it's so tragic but again also hopeful like 
if we're really paying attention, like the signs are undeniable and it doesn't require like a specific like skill or amount of attunement. Like it's just like, it's, it's there, like it's there for us to see. And, you know, just if you're outside any amount of time, you're like, okay, like it is much warmer than it was in the past. And like, yeah. I think just on the one hand, it speaks to like how, how we are so disconnected and so not paying attention, even from these like really obvious things. But on the other hand, like how easy it would be to drop into that level of attunement where that information would, we would be receptive and sensitive to that information. Like it's- I think in order for people to really sink into it, we have to shift our culture into one that is at least willing to witness grief. Mm. Because we do not live, and I'm talking about like Western dominant cultural Christianity. Like I'm not talking, I'm not, every person doesn't have the same relationship to culture, but the, the over culture that we are all being impacted by does not allow us to pause and fall apart. You know, it's crazy though, because it's funny that this has come up because I've been like in a grief process of my own um, and and really noticing that. And I, you know, I am super privileged. I am in a place where I can fall apart, but there have been times in the past, this is like older grief coming up where I wasn't. And so like yeah. now this grief is like getting pulled up by this fresher grief. Um, I have to say like on the one hand, I get it because like, if we let ourselves drop into grief, the amount of things to grieve these days, like it's if you much. don't hold it in community, it is overwhelming. So I, on the one hand, I can totally see how people just repress the shit out of grief. Cause if you allow it, you're like, there's so much to grieve. So um, much. And I don't think that is just like what you said, when we're not anchoring it in community, each of us I'm grieving like 25 things this week. Um, <laughs> you know, I I had I was in a session with a therapist yesterday and she asked me if I could take some time for myself. And I was like, I don't have, the, I just can't today or tomorrow. I have a podcast tomorrow. That's this right now. I got to put four. I have a mentorship session with a client. Like I'll fall apart on Sunday. And sometimes that's the reality. Sometimes you do have to look at your life and say, I can't have a come apart right now so I'm gonna set time later the problem is we never set time or we don't have community to help hold us through the many things that we are grieving one person can only truly care about so many things and like actually take tangible action against that and that is something I've had to learn over the last few years but um I think yeah I think we need to live in a culture that can hold space for grief which means we need to live in a culture that values community and I mean like real community community networks of interdependence and care and we all need to have, be resourced in various ways to increase our capacity for dealing with the difficult circumstances of our world because a lot of people will in my observation will experience the grief but they don't know how to increase their capacity to hold it. And I don't know about you and your own grief process, but in I, last winter, I went through some significant loss and 
um, like the first major loss of someone in my life. Mm. So I, I um, haven't lost a lot of family members or when a grandparent of mine died, I was pretty young. So I, I didn't really, I wasn't fully aware of the weight of it, but I lost someone close to me. And I've really learned that grief doesn't get smaller or go away. You just kind of grow bigger around it. Mm-hmm. And so increasing my capacity to be able to sit with that grief has been the most important skill. Yeah. Have you read, um, not to get us into a tangent, The Wild Edge of Sorrow by Frances Weller? No, I haven't. I spend most of my life reading reference books. So that's when I'm working my way through now. It is a book about grief and it's very much a a book about how um, our culture, you know, like you're saying, has broken a lot of the mechanisms that help us grieve, like in, in terms of that community space, even in terms of that ritual space, like you're just talking about having to like wait until like a free day to fall apart. I do think, you know, there's cultures that just have like seasonal or yearly like grief ceremony or like any grief that you haven't gotten to process for whatever reason, like there's days or times for everyone to be in process together to like pick up that residual stuff that still hasn't been washed through. And I think that's- I think this is another hallmark of more in indigenous and intact cultures. When I went through that loss, I'm Jewish ethnically, but I wasn't raised in, I wasn't raised religious because my mom grew up in the USSR and like systemic anti-Semitism. They weren't allowed to practice Judaism or anything. So I didn't have any good, like solid touchstones of Judaism as a life way versus like big holidays, you know? Um, and when I lost the person in my life, um, I started exploring like our cultural protocols for grief and it's deeply embodied, you know, it's not just people coming together, but like whole protocols of ritual to help you move through stages of grief. Mm-hmm. And not just like this, like anger, bargaining, denial kind of thing that we hear yeah. about grief, but like, um, it, it it was a clear structure. When I felt like I was just like waiting in the abyss of feeling, um, it helped me have a structure of how to grieve. Because I think a lot of us aren't modeled how to grieve either. And so we ha- we're living in this world of imminent climate collapse. We've already said, not everyone in the world is bad. We've got a lot of good people doing really good stuff. There's still beautiful stuff happening in nature. The trees are still going to bloom. You know, like yeah. the world is still going on. There's still so much to be excited and joyful about. But what protocols do we have to hold ourselves through the, the really real grief? Yeah. I mean, that's something that I think about a lot. Like there, there are certain human emotions that feel so big that a community structure does feel like the only way to experience them safely and fully and to like fully metabolize them. And I, you know, I think like deep grief is one, like deep rage is, is maybe another where like, yeah, in order to, to move through that safely, like there needs to be more than just you, like just kind of winging it or like, 
that are so like, um, I think emotionality is something that is connected to culture and we've lost yes, like a safety around emotions when, we, when we've lost a lot of, or I don't even want to say we've lost culture, but the culture we're in now is just not a helpful it's culture. Not, it's inhumane. Yeah. And like, I really mean that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like it is inhumane to people and it's like not a human way of being. No, it prevents humanity. It prevents the humanity of wholeness. Um, and it's become more apparent to me, especially as I've like returned back to my own culture, because I mean, I come from a, what I would say growing up, like a very old world family. Yeah. You know, um, I, when I talk about coming from a collectivist culture, I don't mean like collectivism as people think of like Soviet communism, because it was not a collectivist culture in that sense, but just a, a, a we care for us kind of perspective. Um the importance of the family unit and by that meaning your grandparents your your first cousins your second cousins your third cousins their kids you know <laughs> much broader definition of family than we consider in our like nuclear concept of families um the need for us to be with each other and to like go through our cultural seasonal rituals and things together i i've as I've gotten older, I've really seen the wisdom in that, which I kind of resented growing up and distanced myself from because of the pressure of assimilating into this like white cultureless anti-culture thing. Oh man, it's funny because I'm first generation as well. My parents are from Poland and all like just to circle back to something we were talking about earlier, this idea of like doing things in a Venusian way with like intentional beauty. Um you know, I see like just in the way my parents like prepare for holidays or even just in the way that they like just decorated their home or like there is this just like slower, more beautiful, like more ceremonial way of even just moving through everyday life, but also of like holidays and, and more special times that as someone trying to assimilate, I was like, this doesn't look like fucking pizza and video games. No, thank you. And now I'm like, oh, yeah, shit. Like, oh, I, I wish I cherished that more, else. you know? Yeah. Yeah. My, um, my grandparents lived in the, on the other side of the country. And so I spent every summer with them, um, but I didn't get the opportunity of having every Friday night Shabbat dinner with them, like my, my cousins. And sometimes I talk to my cousins and I'm like, you should spend more time with them. You're still so, they live in the neighborhood next to you. Like spend more time with them. You don't know what you have. Um, but of course I only have that perspective because I didn't get the same kind of closeness with them. Um, but yeah, I look back on things from my childhood and um, this is actually a big turning point for me in my herbalism journey and how I conceptualize my work as an herbalist, because I used to not think of what my grandparents did or even what my mom did as herbalism. I used to think like herbalism was this like structured intellectual practice that I learned from herb school. Yeah. But the first time I ever did herbalism was like picking things in the garden with my baba and like, um, my grandpa combining certain spices and some of our traditional foods like that was herbalism 
And when I had that realization, I was like, wow, but that was, it was so beautiful and it was so simple and it was just part of their life. It's not just like my job, you know? And that was a big turning point for me in my own herbalism journey of like, oh, this can just be this beautiful, um, comforting part of my life. Well, I think, I mean, I think that's really important where the way that we do, again, in this like very clinical, sterile culture, there's like these certifications, there's this gatekeeping, like the person that you're learning from, like you don't know them. But like, yeah. again, in like the old ways, the culture was taught through relating. It wasn't like this thing where, you know, like you were saying, you give your students a monograph and you just hope that they're like engaging with the material, like you were there next to them. Like together. I try to be there next to them virtually, but they don't always take me up on the offer. Well, yeah, like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like imagining, you know, like you with your grandparents in the garden, like you, their, their hands are teaching your hands, you know, like yeah. it's such a different way of learning um, where it's very um, like co-regulated and physical and yeah. daily. It's not like, oh, like I have class from six to seven. To <laughs> And I think that it's like both are beneficial in different ways. And I don't think you have to have, I, so I, I know someone will hear this and they might feel a pang of grief because they don't have that family to learn these things from, you know? Yeah. And like, you don't have to have it. It's nice. And I will say my grandma doesn't think she practices herbalism, even though she makes like tinctures with rose for blemishes on her face and has been for 50, 60 years. My grandpa doesn't think he's an herbalist, even though um, he like does all of this amazing garden stuff and culinary stuff with plants and herbal medicines my great grandma who wanted to be a physician probably didn't think she was an herbalist, even though she was. Um, I think this, the way that like Western herbalism has conceptualized herbalism has tried to turn it into this like perfectly clear career. And for most of our ancestors, whether it's for like you and I of one generation of separation potentially, or someone who has been assimilated for 10 generations, it's just a part of people's life. Like herbalism is both a folk tradition and it's like an actual medicinal science. Again, physicians were herbalists. So I think some people overplay the like romanticization of the folk ways of it. Yeah, It's both. Um, and if you're a human being on the planet, you have a history of ancestral herbalism. That's comforting. That's such a comforting thought. Um. Yeah, like not to get all negative, but I do think that's one way in which this culture that we're in right now, this American like imperial culture is, you can tell that it's not a real culture because in the real culture, it's like you said, people learn these tangible things and they don't think of themselves as like an herbalist or like a potter or like, you know, a baker, but they all have like a basic knowledge of it. And then, yeah, you do, you specialize. Um, and sometimes I just think the mark of a sterile, like dead culture is how few like folk crafts or like hand mm -hmm. things you know how to do. And yeah, well, and what is, is it valued or not? You know, we're yeah. seeing this time in our culture too, where like we have a massive lack of tradespeople. Totally. You know, and like 
our society won't function without them. So we need more people to care about doing work that has been deemed as like being less than in our economy um, of supremacy. But I'm getting to a place, I think, with herbalism where like, it's my career, like I am a teacher, it's my job, it's good for me to separate it from like my life, mm. you know, uh, to have the boundaries is good, personally. But with that, I've also kept like my, a lot of my herbal practice is mine. Mm. It is my, it's my cultural way of life. It is how I move through the world. Um. I keep, I, I keep a lot of my personal stuff separate from what I actually do in my work. Mm. That's interesting. Um, I do think there's something there around how, again, especially in this culture, like the minute we love something, like we try to monetize it a lot of the time and it, and it completely stops being like just for fun or just for us and yeah. Yeah, I really stopped enjoying it. Like I went on, on a sabbatical last year. That's what I told everyone. It it was not a sabbatical. It started off because I, I had to take some time off um for various reasons. Then I lost someone close to me, which extended that. Then I had a full breakdown an identity crisis and was like I don't even think I want to be an herbalist anymore I don't think I want to participate in this western herbal structure anymore I saw all the issues it's been building up for years of seeing all of these different issues of all the stuff we're talking about of this disconnection in a field that says it's about bringing people in relationship with plants but it's not it's not always like that and I really I almost shut down ruin and sage um, I almost went back to web design, which is what I used to do before this professionally. I like did a website for a friend just to see if I could do it again. Mm. <clears throat> and then I had some big realizations about my work and what it meant to do my work and how I could make it beautiful and fun again and be in my values. And it's meant largely separating myself from the industry at large, which I'm okay with, but, um, yeah, I almost quit. <laughs> I think, again, I I think the way that like capitalism wants us to do our work in the world has no space for times like that, like times of crisis. But I think times of crisis are actually very normal and very natural and very like mm -hmm. course corrective. Like, oh shit, like, I really need to take, you know, like the way that you did, like, I need to have a breakdown. I need to like really reimagine this so that it works and it continues to be in integrity with my evolution and my truth. I, it's so funny. I'm, I'm feeling a lot of resonance with you. Um, I will say like, I had a breakdown multiple times in my business of doing skincare and which was similar. It was like green beauty. It was not like as in relationship with plants, but there was this aspect of like going slow, like healing, um, being an intuition of what I wanted to create. And for, for me, it didn't 
survived. Like I, I ended up closing my business and, um, I don't know what I want to say about that, except for like, I still like wonder if it was a good decision. I still kind of feel pulled to maybe go back to it. And I really think about why. Um, but maybe just like, yeah, like I've, I've had moments with, with my old business too, where I was very much like, I don't like the way that I'm showing up. I don't like the, what this industry has become. And, um, and for me, it just, it ended up not resurrecting, but. Yeah. I mean, I will say before I had my little breakdown, which I, I don't want anyone to romanticize like taking six months off because what it really looked like was like withdrawal from <laughs> uh so like society for a couple of weeks I was in like hyper acute distress mm. um very much not functioning very well because of some traumatic things that happened but also like I just shut everyone out for a little while because mm. I couldn't deal mm. I had no resources and like zero capacity on my being to show up and so I was falling apart for a little while and then it was a, a couple of months of honestly, just like sitting with a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and just like staring out the window and letting my, my mind go blank. And then I started to have some ideas and then I started to kind of tease out everything I had done to the point and saying like, well, what feels good? What feels not good? And then one day I'd be like, I'm gonna open up the business. I'm gonna relaunch this. And then the next day I'd be like, I'm going to burn it all to the ground. And then that would happen like every other hour for a couple of weeks. I was going through a nodal reversal. If anyone wants to know the astrology of it <laughs> uh, with Uranus on my, but this has been a long, long story for me of um, Uranus and Taurus not having a good time. Um, but I was really like, I, I, every three hours, I was changing my mind about what I was going to do. And it took me a long time to get to an embodied yes. Um, and I mean like three months, but then I relaunched all my courses and I started teaching more and I started investing more in the, the community of people who wanted to show up for my work and I drew bit, bigger boundaries. And I will say before I went through this like crisis of faith in my industry and my work, um, I had all of these big dreams of things I thought I needed to do to like hit the success point that was going to take years of my life to accomplish. And now I'm kind of get to, getting to a place of like, you know, I've got a couple of more big projects in me that I want to accomplish, but then I think I might have done enough. Wow. And maybe Rowan and Sage won't exist forever. Hmm. Maybe it will. It'll just exist but maybe I won't add anything to it. I won't do this hyper-capitalistic of more and more and more. Yeah. And getting to that place is like wild for me. I never thought I would arrive to a place of being like, I am satisfied with what I have accomplished and I don't need to do anything else. Oh my goodness. That I'm like very envious or like, just like, wow, like can that exist? Cause for me, you know, like, it's interesting because like you, 
you had your crisis and like you continued for me, I had my crisis and I quit and I started. So for me, I'm very much in this like new place of like, uh, it's just, it's Aries energy, but like at age 40. So it's like Aries and like Capricorn, just like ouchiness a little bit. Um, but I, I mean, I love that. And I also, you know, I think there's a way in which we do business where we don't let businesses grow like as organically or as wild as they could. And I think even just like letting a business close versus like forcing it or even letting a business um, kind of shape shift in a more natural way versus like, it just needs to be bigger milestone, milestone, milestone IPO. I think it's just you articulating that I think is very healing, honestly, just to like say those words out loud around how you ran your business and what you feel about it now. It feels really good. It took me a long time to like embody my yes and no on some of those things I'm really liking the phrase sunset Sunset. someone I know she sunsetted her business earlier this year where she was really like I still love this work but Mm. I'm done I'm, I'm done with this iteration I love that and I like that phrasing it's like oh okay I like that it mirrors like cycles of time, you know, and seasonality. It takes away that like gnawing feeling of, oh, I failed. (laughs) Uh, I gave up or something. I didn't see it through. Yeah. I think it's really- There's this thing in, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no. Like, I mean, this is your interview, but I will just say like, there is like a wisdom to using like nature words for when we talk about shit that we, that I just love. And I think just you saying sunsetting, I'm going to make an effort. Like when I'm talking about stuff to just double check, like, am I using capitalist words or am I using nature words? It's going to be a new practice of mine, but continue. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a really great exercise it again brings us back more into like that humanness i yeah. think um there's this pressure in herbalism especially of like okay you become a home herbalist you become a community herbalist you become a clinical herbalist mm. and like clinical herbalism in the american herbal psyche is seen as like the thing like once you've done the clinical herbalism training and you're working as a clinician you've you've hit the peak you've accomplished the thing like you did it good job and i did it and i hated it yeah um from the second i learned that herbalism could be a career i saw that trajectory and i was like that's what i'm gonna do that's the natural cycle and i like being clinically trained but um, if I could redo it, I probably would have just been become like a botanical perfumer, honestly, and not an herbalist. Just like go to perfumery school. If I could do it all over again, that'd be cool. Um, but now I have students where I'm teaching home herbalism because I just want people again to like remember what it's like to make something with your grandparents and infuse herbs in that and then get curious as to like, why do we put that herb in this? How does that support the dish or support our health through this dish, stuff like that. People are like, okay, but how do I start practicing? And I'm like, 
you don't have to <laughs> like you can if you want but do you feel like you want to practice because you really want to practice and that's your community role mm -hmm. or do you feel like you want to practice because it's the next logical step same thing people ask me well are you going to teach a clinical program and I'm like I don't know I'm trying to remove the pressure of it being like, that's the next thing I'm supposed to do. If I want to do it, I'll do it. But like, eh, I don't know. I do think that takes us out of our own knowing, you know, where it's just like, first I get a bachelor's, then I get a master's, then I get a PhD. And you're yeah. just like so focused on like, you're like, I see the path instead of just being like, am I happy on like this path? is this is this still working for me um I think it's good to yeah I think it's good to have some system for determining whether it's working for you um as opposed to just like I got I have to hit this like final marker yeah and I mean, I've hit so many of the final markers. I've done the certification. I thought it was the thing I was going to need to like feel good in my practice or something. Mm -hmm. And then I did it and I'm like, oh, I didn't actually need that. I think it's either like, I didn't actually need that or like I got that and I don't feel the way it was supposed to make me feel. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Before we were talking, before we were like officially starting to record too, we were briefly talking about diet culture and this really mirrors some of my experiences with that as well of like, well, when I hit that number on the scale or mm. when I, when I accomplish this thing, I will feel better about myself. Yeah. It was never true, you know, like, and it was always hurting me and so now I've like temporarily put myself on a moratorium of taking any new classes because mm. <laughs> there's some classes that I like really want to take because the knowledge is really interesting to me not because like I can use it to monetize in some way that's a good barometer for me um but I know I have a tendency to think that like okay if I do it then that's what's going to make me feel satisfied in my work or my life but I generally know that that's usually not the case. And so I'm like temporarily putting myself on pause. Yeah, I think I, you're not the first person. I have another friend who told me that they were going on a like vacation from learning new stuff. Um, and I, I do, I think that's very, again, like indigenous is just like returning to the same thing and seeing what else is there for you versus being like, okay, I've read this book, now this book, now this book, like, there was a social media post I saw the other day, and it was, I'm going to butcher it, but it was something about, like, be just one stanza instead of, like, the whole, like, all of the chapters, and there is something there for, like, just maturing and, like, incubating what you already have and, like, revisiting versus just being, like, this is new and interesting, this is new and interesting, because I do think for myself, astrologically speaking, I'm Aries moon in the ninth house. So it feels like extremely fun and comforting to just chase new information. Like, I'm just like, yeah, like I love stuff that like blows my mind. I love new ideas. But then what happens is 
you only ever get half of it and you don't get that like integration, like practical, like actually like being in it and like living it in your life, you know, which is kind of the most important part. I mid heavens and Aries, so I relate in a different kind of way, but like how many things have I started and then not finished? (laughs) I have like four certification programs that I need to just finish. That's another reason why I put myself on a moratorium. I love chasing ideas. I love learning. Love it. And I used to think I had to be like part of the academy to do that. Every couple of years, I'll delude myself into thinking I'm going to go back and get another degree. (laughs) And I'll spend a couple of hours like looking at all these different degree programs at my alma mater and different colleges and stuff. And then I'm like, no, I don't. Yeah. Don't want this. But I will forget that I don't want this because of the pressures of society yeah I have to watch myself because for me at some point it becomes like just a comfort zone or even a type of escapism versus like really that like embodied messy like this is this is where I fail this is where like I know it in my brain but like my body doesn't know it kind of uncomfortable space so it's a big reason why I've when I did decide to keep doing what I do, even though there are limitations of teaching online, as we've discussed, you know, I, I can't dig in the dirt with them. Yeah. Um, I really have tried to orient everything I teach towards marrying intellectual and embodied understanding, um, which kind of circles us back to the moon, like that embodied place. I just don't think information is very actually useful to us unless it's integrated. Mm-hmm. Um, I can know, I, I will often say to my students that like an herbalist who knows a hundred uses of 10 herbs is way more effective than someone who knows a hun- one use for a hundred herbs. Mm-hmm. And it comes down to like that embodied understanding of those plants same with teachings or astrology. Like I want to have an embodied understanding of all of the planets, not just keywords of what they're connected to. And that requires time and relationship and going against a capitalist paradigm because like it's, it's going deep and narrow versus just like accumulation, like this superficial accumulation. Yeah. And I would say like, even with astrology, I have a pretty decent relationship with most of the planets, but um I don't like there's still so much more for me to experience with them to be able to really say like I know Saturn or I know Mars you know I know them through certain experiences in my life and say like do we know the fullest expanse of their being now can I know the fullest expanse of their being in my very limited lifetime probably not but like that's what I want to be moving towards I think that's really beautiful to name and I don't think I've hardly heard anyone talk about astrology in that way but I love um like, I don't know about you and your astrological practice, but like kind of by way of the transits or just kind of by way of like the energetics of the season, you do end up spending time with each planet individually. And again, in a very like biological way, like where you could just have like a long period for me right now, I'm having like a very Plutonic period of my life just because, you know, Pluto is transiting my son and it's 
retrograding its ass off like right there so it's it's been a while and it's going to be a while still but um yeah there is a way in at least again for me and my experience each planet comes and kind of introduces itself individually and kind of gives you like a little bit of an independent study and then like another one rotates in and that is not astrology like reading books or reading websites or even working with clients or your own chart like that's a very different experience and you cannot rush it you cannot <laughs> um something that's been challenging for me i think something that's really forced me to slow down to talking about transits is i've been having a fucking neptune transit for like those two, yeah. over a decade you know <laughs> oh those outer planets if i didn't have a stellium in pisces it wouldn't be that big of a deal so like not only that but just that um virgo moon pisces sun opposition um like discernment is the key word of my life and i have learned for me, I can only really cultivate that discernment through embodied knowing and experience. Um, like cr int critical intellectual study is good for discernment, but you gotta like get in the weeds. And Neptune has been hard for me, obviously. <laughs> Just like creating a diffusive fog around everything for me um, in various ways, especially with my health, I will say. Um, yeah, that, that was system. tracking the Neptune transits and my autoimmunity is what really helped me believe in medical astrology yeah. or like see its merit um because literally I had like a Mars return and then Neptune settled into Pisces right on top of my sun and I got sick and no one could figure it out for years it was just like so classically yeah. Neptunian um but I think if I had like, if I had all the resources I needed to just survive and not do capitalism and all this stuff, the ideal dream I would have for my life would be to like, essentially be a temple priestess back in ancient Mesopotamia, like spending all of my time looking up at the gods in the sky and discerning their omens and caring for the people in my communities, like spiritual and physical needs in partnership with the heavens and the earth and I know it can sound like cheesy and stuff and makes me sound like this really whimsical romantic person but um that's like what I wish I could do I wish I could spend every night just stargazing and contemplation and that well, would be my astrology practice it's why I don't do readings yeah I, I don't get filled up from staring at charts and doing all of my delineation and having consults with people, I get filled up by going out and looking at the sky. And having the embodied experience. Yeah. And talking with people about that. Like the first time I took my partner outside and explained to him divisions of the sky, like showed him houses yeah. in the sky and how that thing on that circle chart on your phone is like, what's happening yeah. in the sky? It just like, it clicked for him. Everything just like fell into place. Mm -hmm. um we need to be outside oh, I feel like this is just a calling to be more embodied in astrology I think a lot of astrologers this is good medicine for them to hear
I hope so. I mean, I think people think I'm silly sometimes, but I'm seeing a rising movement of astrologers getting really more into this like embodied practice and some of what's been seen as more of like the esoteric magical sides of astrology. Um, and I'm really excited to continue to witness that and see what happens over the next couple of years, especially in like the traditional scene, because that's really where I hang out. Mm -hmm. Um I I'm curious. I'm curious to see how it all yeah. Out. I mean, I it's interesting because um this whole like spear and sundry, like astro magic thing, like I I actually a part of me is intrigued and then a part of me is like I feel a little bit weird about like believing in talismans and I feel like a little bit weird about like my trust if I was going to engage in this like my own ability to pull like an election chart that's really um like helpful and really does like you know and this talisman with with something that is helpful and not harmful but I also um you know that is a way to to become more embodied because like you're again like you're you're making stuff with your hands that is astrological and has like some astrological meaning and significance you're doing a lot of theurgical work to actually imbue this thing like I have I'm wearing a Venus talisman right now um and I have a like shelf of Caitlin's products which I used before this this session um you can't just like accidentally make a talisman you know you have to do a lot of work and like you have to have a relationship my understanding from people who do this because I don't do this yeah um, it's I have enough that I'm doing like doing all of the extra learning I would need to do to like you said like do a good election um would be just so much um I'm grateful for the people who like that's their role yeah. in this community but you can't just accidentally like ask a planet to imbue an object with their essence. You have to really work for it. Um, and some of the like astro mages that are doing some really beautiful work, you talk to them about their relationships with these beings that they're in partnership with and you feel their absolute devotion. Mm. Because it really is like a devotional practice mm. i think people get kind of freaked out by the word devotion but because they brings up like aspects of religiosity mm. but it's Which a word i love yeah well virgo moon and also virgo archetype like if people understood like that word a little bit better because i do think like the religiosity squishes it into like one dimension but it really is so much more so I mean, there's this element of partnership and service and reciprocity and mutualism. And people often ask me when they're asking me about astroherbalism, like, how did you get into this work? And I'm like, um, Venus and Jupiter said, do it. Because <laughs> I have Venus and Pisces trying my Jupiter and Scorpio. Oh, interesting. And the, the practice of astrological herbalism and the practice of like traditional quote unquote herbal of, or, I mean, traditional astrology comes from my ancestors in Mesopotamia and Persia. Yeah. Like it is a practice that is so important to me. 
And of course, like Jupiter in the fourth house, my little um, hidden ancestral library. <laughs> this is how someone has described that placement to me, which I love. Hidden ancestral library. I have, I don't have Jupiter in my fourth house. Oh, you know what? Actually, in some house systems, I think I do, but I do have Scorpio on my, on my IC. So, similar. Um, yeah, I love that. I, I feel like this is probably a pretty good place to begin to wrap. I feel like we're getting like a little bit more like contemplative, like a little <laughs> longer silences kind of like have been a little bit all over the map. Yeah, we've such really... a beautiful conversation though. I think there's so much wisdom and medicine, even you know, that we've like briefly touched on, um, but some things we've gotten a little bit deeper into. I don't know, is there anything else that you want to share that you kind of wish we'd talked about or any threads we left hanging? Oh gosh, good luck with editing because we were really just I mean, I guess if people want to learn more about this stuff. Like they want to learn more about herbalism. They want to learn about astro herbalism. They want to learn more about tending to their bodies with the lunar cycle or um, astrology has a relationship to the body. Wow. Who knew, you know, <laughs> I want to learn about all these things, the stuff that I regularly talk about and everything that I do. And I have a couple of different programs out there for people at varying levels um, or who are interested in different things. Everything that I've created is um, open to anyone who wants to learn at any level from beginner to even I have clinicians in my programs who just want to get a different perspective or who want to remember that herbalism can be fun and just their own personal practice again. Um, but for folks who are interested on like the, the astro herbalism side, I teach a program called Seasonal Herb Craft that is oriented around the solar zodiacal year. And in there, we really, every month, we talk about some of the Swana origin myths, like mythological stories and agricultural connections to each of the zodiac signs, really like recontextualizing astrology in its land based roots. Because I think this is something that's missing a lot. Yeah. And astrology now is we've universalized a system that was an indigenous land-based mm. like relational uh, calendar. Um, so I talk a lot about that. I took a, I talk a lot about that. Um, and also like how to care for ourselves in the seasons, themes to focus on therapeutically. Um what's happening in the land around us and like really encouraging people to really observe what's happening in the land around them and get to know the plants. And then every month we talk about a couple of different plants to have a relationship with like planetary ruler of the sign season that we're currently in, or could be particularly helpful for some of the common energetic type of issues we have in those seasons. It's my favorite thing that I get to teach and I'm really looking forward to continuing to expand it because this year, I re-recorded the whole program for this year. So now that I'm about to re-record the winter section, I will be done and it'll be there and it'll all be there for anyone who enrolls. Um, but next year, I'm really looking forward to adding some deeper layers and talk more about like planetary relationship building um, and get into more of these deeper embodied practices. 
with planets. That sounds awesome. That sounds so awesome. I, I love your work. Thank you so much. This has been such a, just truly healing and like just gentle <laughs> conversation. That's how I've experienced it. I don't know. No, it's been really sweet. I feel a little dreamy and wistful. Yeah. It's <laughs> good. Um, we didn't hit all the things we wanted to talk about. I didn't teach in this podcast. We just kind of chatted. I hope it helps people get to know me and my worldview and my perspective and um, the nuance and compassion I really wish to embody and carry forward with this work. Uh, I really just want to be in good relationship with people and help them be in good relationship with the world. That's, I think, my community role. And astro herbalism is like a way I get to do that. That's cool and magical and really fun. Yay. Thank you everyone for sticking with us during this conversation, which had so many gems and so much wisdom. And the pacing was just very languid and organic. Um, so Sarah described her work and her offerings so beautifully. Um, I can't even do it justice and I'm not going to try, but we'll have all the information linked in the show notes. Um, her website is rowanandsage.com. That's also her social media handle, Rowan and Sage. Um, I follow her on Instagram and can look for her on other social media platforms. And Sarah mentioned um, a lot of her offerings, and I just want to review seasonal herb craft is the Astro Herbalism course, and that can be found on the website. We'll have a direct link to that as well in the show notes. One last big thank you to Sarah. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and for this beautiful conversation and for everything you shared. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a quick review, subscribing to the show, or sharing it with your friends. This is a beautiful reciprocity and generosity practice for yourself, as well as a way to support content and podcasters like myself that you enjoy. All the contact info and relevant details for today's show can be found in the show notes. Bye for now and sending you lots of love.